month or so, these messages, I just started looking ahead last night um, in the Gospel of Mark, and they're going to start getting to be pretty emotional messages, and I was just thinking, I just started reading it, verses, you know, chapter 13, 14, 15, and I thought to myself, man, after the journey we've been on, how am I going to be able to get through these messages, knowing the background of everything we've been studying, right? It's just... It's going to make these last four chapters beautiful, the fact that we've gone through these 60 weeks together. Um, But today's is very fascinating. It's a very, uh, for many, it's a troubling passage, but not for us. Uh, This is week 61. I've entitled this message, Hope on the Hillside. So what is your um, first reaction when you hear the word prophecy? Is it warm fuzzies? Is it intimidation? Is it not interested? Frankly, I don't know. In my time as a Christian, which has been about 40 years, it seems like biblical prophecy has been so alluring. Why is that? Why is prophecy so alluring, yet at the same time so intimidating? And it can also seem, biblical prophecy, if you listen to a lot of people, it seems really complicated. 70 weeks of Daniel, Revelation of the beast and the horns and all. It's just, it's hard to keep it all together and really know what it says. Have you ever known someone who had a very healthy, unhealthy, excuse me, obsession with prophecy? You raise your hand if you got, know anybody like that? Just me, okay. The problem is this unhealthy obsession with prophecy results in this really flawed application of scripture. People are straining in prophecy. They're looking through the passages for these cryptic clues, maybe hidden in the numbers or the chapter verse divisions, you know, coming up with, you know, what's it really saying? I know it says that, but that's not what it really means. Sensationalizing every modern day news headline and try to see how this particular headline fits into the prophecy and and a sign of the end of times that are coming. And it can result, I've seen this happen, it can result in this strange apocalyptic prepper-type Christianity somehow. This has been a big business, actually, this apocalyptic prepper Christianity. It's been a big business since about 1860. So many well-meaning Christians have been led astray by flawed prophetic obsession with all of its false predictions that are made and then don't come true. Another, though... excuse me, equally unhealthy approach to prophecy is intimidation. It's too complicated, it's too scary, it's too complex. I'm going to stay clear of it. I'm just going to focus on, you know, easy stuff. And that also is incredibly sad because that causes people to miss out on the true purpose of all prophecy. It's not to tell the future. It's to have hope and encouragement. And to be a good student of the Bible, we cannot and we will not shy away from prophecy, nor can we be obsessed with prophecy. We must learn to read prophecy confidently, carefully, like we do every other passage, history, theology, devotional, and then we will find the solid personal application. So with that in mind, let's read the passage today. It's a little bit of a longer one. Uh, It's called, many people call this, this next chapter that we're going to be studying the next few weeks, they call it the Olivet Discourse. We're just going to call it Mark 13, okay? And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when when will this be? When is this temple going to be destroyed, Jesus? We'd like to know. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Excuse me. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. Easy for you to say, Jesus. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, now after reading that, maybe I understand why people avoid prophecy. (laughs) But we're going to break it down for you, and I hope you're going to see that in the end, this is really not very discouraging. It's actually quite encouraging. Look at the history. You ready? Prophecy at Grace Life. You excited? (laughs) What are you going to do with this one, Joe? I want to call this section Admiring Stones. See, the problem is these disciples are still not getting it, right? This is the end of Jesus' public ministry for three years. It's about the last thing he's going to say to people in general. The rest of it's going to be spent with the disciples. He's been in the temple for two days wreaking havoc on the religious elites, right? It's been quite a spectacle, And now, after an exceptionally long day of teaching and confrontation, we've called it Confrontation Wednesday, they're all leaving the temple together. It's late afternoon. Now, they know that Jesus is Messiah. They know that for sure. But they still have this this misguided hope that he is still going to restore the temple and restore the kingdom of David and Solomon. You can understand, by the way, how these last two days, as extremely exciting as they are, it could seem like, man, this is really cool. Jesus is really kind of taking it to him, like he's taken over. This is our messianic hope. Events in the last two days sure seem like someone who's about to establish a kingdom, don't they? Take back the temple. But despite several warnings, the disciples still don't understand. He has come to set up a different kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, and he's also come to die. But the best is yet to come. That's what they think. That's their question. Envision now this group of disciples. They're tired, but the day was exciting. Emotions are high after all the drama, the anticipation. And as they exit the temple... One disciple, my guess is Peter, no surprise, he stops with the group and turns and he takes one last inspiring look at the temple as they're leaving. They've been inside all day. And he calls the stones and the buildings beautiful. This is not architectural admiration. 
Boy, Jesus, they did a great job putting this temple. That's not what he's doing. It's patriotic. It's a declaration of hope and anticipation. You ever do that? Say something so obvious to someone you expect everyone to agree? Like, you know what? Isn't Tom Brady the greatest quarterback of all time? And everybody says yes. The disciples are walking out. I've always loved Tom Brady. You guys know that. He's always been my favorite. The disciples are walking out, and one of them says, Jesus, it is amazing what you've done today. All that you've said, what you've taught us, what you taught them. Aren't these buildings and these stones beautiful? In the wake of all that Jesus has said and done for two days, what the temple should be, how it's his house, he's cleansing it, caring for the vulnerable like the widow. It's a place for prayer, not for thieves, a place of worship, exciting what to think this place will become once Jesus makes all that right again. You can understand how this, I would call it like a a stop and take it in type of moment would happen for the disciple. It's an expression of patriotic, spiritual, institutional hope. It's kind of like the transfiguration. If you remember that from a few couple months ago when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain and they met Moses and Elijah. Remember what they wanted to do there? They were so excited. They were so inspired. What did they want to do? They said, Jesus, can we just build three temples right here and just stay here? This is really cool. Isn't this beautiful? It's the same type of thing. Does that make sense? It reveals something sad, though, and very critical. They still loved the temple. They had misguided, patriotic hope in a different kind of Messiah, one that would deliver them from Rome. And then Jesus says something that causes them to say, wait, what? When? His answer, although it's consistent, he said it a few times already. He said it several times before, as a matter of fact. As you can imagine, especially after a day this inspiring and exciting is quite troubling. Team, that temple you're looking at, that beautiful building, it's all going to come down. The temple is finished, guys. God is done with temples. Never again will God live inside a building, even this beautiful one. So then he goes, and I'm just going to put this picture up there. This is actually a picture that I took. When I was in Israel, uh, man, a long time ago, maybe 96, I can't remember. It's been a long time. And uh, this is actually the Mount of Olives. You can see there's a bunch of tombs there now. But if you look across, you can see the Dome of the Rock right over there. But if you look a little bit in front of that gold building, that gold roof, you can see the wall, right? That's the temple. That would be the old city walls and the old temple. The Temple Mount is right on the other side of that. So you can see what's happening is Jesus goes out of the temple. He says it's all going to be torn down. He goes across from the temple to the Mount of Olives right there. That's why they call it the Olivet Discourse. And he's right there. It's a beautiful place. And after all the exciting things they witnessed on Tuesday and Wednesday, this is the last thing they want to hear Messiah has just predicted the demise of the temple. Once again, they're confused and full of questions in Jesus, knowing that they're going to need more data. They're going to need more teaching. He sits down on the side of this mountain right across. a beautiful. You can see the whole city. Even back then, you could see the whole city of Jerusalem. He sits across from it to break it down for them. It's incredibly scenic. 
overlooking the temple and the city. I've been there. A friend of mine when we were there preached this passage. It was unbelievably powerful. Like it was inspiring. And as faithful Jewish men, you could imagine how troubling this all is. What's the first thing you want to know? Wait, what? When? The ones asking the questions, by the way, isn't this interesting? They're the same ones that were on the Mount of the Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. What do you mean, Jesus? When does this destruction start? Next week? Is it next year? What are we going to do when there's no more temple? So that's the history. Let's look at the spiritual part of this. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I've entitled this section, Not So Beautiful. First of all, he goes into what's going to be happening in the near future. He delivers what appears on the surface to us a very ominous prophecy, his most ominous yet about what's coming for the temple, what's coming for Israel, and frankly, what's coming for them, the disciples. And history clearly identifies, if you know your history at all, Jewish history, Roman history, Mark 13 is a definite prophecy for the first century. And the fulfillment of it all will begin very soon. By the way, many think this is yet to happen, Mark 13. Well, it's silly, and I'll explain why in just a minute. 99.999% of this has already taken place. It's clear this passage is a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, it would be Jerusalem's final fall to Rome. And it also is a prophecy of the complete destruction of Israel as a nation and the temple. And shortly after Jesus is gone from the earth and he leaves and sends the Holy Spirit, the persecution of his followers begins as predicted by both Roman authorities, as he predicted, and he also predicted in the synagogues, in Jewish, by Jewish authorities. All this takes place. We see it unfolded in Acts. As a matter of fact, Acts records several instances of bold, brilliant speeches, so brilliant that some of the people listening said, how can these uneducated men know so much? You know what that was? Fulfillment of the last part of the prophecy. It's not you that's going to speak. It's the Spirit of God who will give you the exact words. And then in a few years, you know what happened? Some people started claiming to be Messiah. Not Messiah as in what Jesus was, but I am the Messiah to lead you against Rome. And they began to lead a series of revolts, trying to cast Rome out of Israel. And of course, as Jesus predicted, all of them failed. Jerusalem was completely conquered in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed. But that wasn't it. There was a little bit more. This is a place called Masada. I've been there. It's pretty amazing, right? So you can see how it's right near the Dead Sea, and it's up on the top of this mountaintop. It's flat, and it's really hard to get to, right? And you can see what happened was the very last vestiges of a rebellion against Rome fled. When Jerusalem fell, they fled to Masada, and they hung out there for a few years. They, they would grow crops up there. They built cisterns, so when it rained once a year, they'd have a lot of water, and they began to live up there isolated from the rest of the world, and they were protected because it was a big cliff and the Roman uh, armies could not get there. But look what happened. After a couple years, Caesar says, enough. Get rid of them. So they took the process of about 18 months. You see on the, the right side there, there's a little hill where there's like, like it looks like it's kind of sloped off, like it's not quite as jagged. It was even more built out before they started taking stones and building a rampart. So after about a year, a year and a half, 
the Roman army, which was encamped all around the bottom of Masada, builds this rampart, and they bring their army up, and they wipe out the rest of the vestiges that had been holding out there for two or three years. So 73, 74 A.D., <clears throat> this prophecy of Jesus is completely fulfilled. The one last Jewish stand against Rome at Masada is wiped out, and they went through a lot of trouble to do it. You see how those, that, that rampart is? By the way, I've been to Masada, and when I was there, I'm going to tell you what I felt as I was hearing the story and the guy who was leading our tour went back to teaching us what Jesus said on the, the Mount of Olives. When I felt that, you know, I was, you know what I felt when I was there? This was historical verification of a prophecy written 40 years earlier by Jesus and the fulfillment of it is staring at me right in my face. It was an unbelievable, warm, comforting hope to be sitting right there and saying, wow, nobody could have predicted this 30 or 40 years earlier. Well, except Jesus, of course. And if you think about it, fulfilled prophecies, listen, church, fulfilled prophecies are some of the best proof of the reliability of Scripture. And it makes prophecy a place of hope. And Jesus is talking about the near future and tough times ahead. And this is going to shock Peter, James, and John, although it shouldn't, right? They're still anticipating this kingdom of David. Their expectations of this utopian kingdom would make this type of prophecy in Mark 13 revolting to a first century Jew. This prophecy is, is really more about Jesus ripping to shreds their final clutches of a fallacy of hope in a man-made religion, a man-made temple, and a man-made country. Soon the world will be in total upheaval. Rome is coming for Israel and will totally wipe it out. He lays out the perils and the disappointment that comes from hope that is wrapped in an institution. <clears throat> even if your hope is wrapped up in the nation of Israel, even the city of Jerusalem itself, everything that you have hope and comfort in, it's all a mirage, it's a facade, it is unstable. Not only that, but the world will hate you. They will want to kill you. They will want to shut you up. Jesus was telling them to stop trusting in today. Stop trusting in the things you see. Stop trusting in the temple. Stop trusting in earthly institutions. No matter how beautiful you think they are, they're all going to let you down. That is the core of what Jesus' prophecy is. To warn them, they must have a new hope that is not of this world. Guys, your hope can be in an institution if you want it to be, all your experiences there in that institution, in that building, all of its great and wonderful ministry programs, all that stuff, that's great, but there is no hope in it. There is no hope in Israel itself. None. But then he gives them a greater hope. The very last part of this prophecy is the most important one. It's a promise of salvation and endurance and hope in the new kingdom and in the gospel. A promise of this Holy Spirit that comes and empowers them, giving them courage and wisdom and perfect words in moments of greatest fear. 
Power to testify to governors and rulers, he says, and nations about the love and the power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with the greatest encouragement left for the very last words that they will endure. The message of hope and grace will prevail and they will have eternal life. And it is not conditional. It's based on the fact that the Holy Spirit will be working in them. By the way, the Holy Spirit that's not there yet. Jesus is saying, get this now, you're going to love this. At least I hope you love it. I loved it. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not the temple that's beautiful. It's you that's beautiful. Doesn't that give you chills? The temple won't survive. But you will. That's why the disciples still didn't get it. Even after all that had happened, they still loved their memories, their nostalgia, the history, the programs, the experiences that they all had in the temple, that was still their source of hope. But this prophecy was designed to redirect their misguided hope to where it belonged, to the spirit that would now dwell within them. That's a lot. Let's talk about the personal. What are we supposed to do with this prophecy? I want to talk about prophetic hope. So this was my Sunday sermon preview this week. Some of you saw it and liked it. Thank you for those that didn't like it. What's the problem? <laughs> like it. But anyway, here it is. The main purpose for biblical prophecy isn't to know the future, but to know where to place our hope. I'm going to give you a little lesson on reading prophecy this morning. Today's passage is perhaps the most well-known prophetic passage in the Bible. But you know what? It's rarely preached. In 40 years as, as a Christian, I can't remember any sermons about this. Why? It's such a hopeful passage. See, Mark 13 reminds us of the importance of reading and interpreting all of Scripture Accurately. See, many read prophecies here and in Revelation and in Daniel, and they try to interject their own modern-day experience. And when this happens, and frankly it happens often, they fall victim to what I call prophetic narcissism. That's my own phrase. I like that. It means that the prophecy is about me. It's about us. It's about America. We try to interject America into things like Mark 13, and it's ridiculous. Like all of human history and all of its future focuses and rolls around us? How arrogant is that? And when we study biblical prophecy, you know what you need to do? From this day forward, it'll make it a lot easier for you to read if you just start with this assumption. It's relevant to those who it was written to before you. Doesn't that make sense? It's more relevant to those whom it is given than us. See, this prophecy was for the disciples, not us. Otherwise, it would mean nothing to them. It would have very little relevance to the disciples and really would be no reason for them to pay attention to it. Now, that does not mean that there isn't something quite relevant for us in this prophecy. Especially if it's fulfilled prophecy, 
quite the contrary. There's a lot there for us. And the way God works, and this is why we study history, theology, devotional, the way God works across history is a constant. He's a never-changing God. Therefore, prophetic themes apply even if the events are different. This is where understanding the historical application of every passage is so crucial. And if you, if you skip it, especially with prophecies, you have about a 2% chance of getting to really know what the personal application should be. And then once we understand the history, now we can start to unlock the true theological concepts that are within these passages. We don't have to be captive to irrational, unbiblical obsession with specifics. And it's clear, by the way, that specifics in this prophecy have already happened. Agreed? But its purpose is still incredibly precious today. It's still incredibly beautifully relevant for us, even right here in downtown Sarasota at Grace Life. See, God doesn't give us prophecy, church, to send us on a ridiculous wild goose chase hunting for signs of the future. That's not the point of prophecy. He gives us prophecy so we will cling to hope now. I want to talk about beautiful stones. Peter who was there and asked the question, when is this all going to happen? This temple's going to be destroyed. Who I think Peter was the one that said these beautiful stones. Remember I told you that? I think it was him that said, look at these beautiful stones, this beautiful building. He writes an incredible passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's one of my favorite. And listen, I could preach on this particular passage and this concept for like a month, but I'll only do it for like two minutes, okay? Bear with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, Peter's talking about coming to Jesus, A living stone, Jesus, is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look what he says in verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up, not destroyed, built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see the the, the undeniable tie between this passage and Mark 13? This temple is going to be destroyed. Peter says, yeah, but you are now beautiful stones, and you are being built up. Do you see that? Isn't that gorgeous? See, Jesus' prophecy is not about... Well, let me just rephrase it. His prophecy about how those things that they thought were beautiful will crumble. That our hope has to be in the power within us the Holy Spirit. See, what they hope for, think about this now, what they hope for in the first century in many ways is the same that we hope for, prosperity, a good future for our children, safety, redemption, eternal life. What they hoped for was the same. But the problem is those hopes, hopes for those things cannot reside, listen to me carefully, in anything that is created by man. Not a religion, not a temple, not a government, not a church building, not church programs, not church music, 
None of those things can be the source of hope that we desire. What is that? Hope to endure to the end. Hope for salvation. Hope for redemption. All of that is hinged on one thing. It is the power of the Holy Spirit living in His new temple of beautiful stones. His new beautiful building. Us. That's the real temple. Those are the real beautiful stones. Us. And it's far superior to governments or church buildings, etc. You know why? Because these beautiful stones, these temples where Jesus lives now, guess what they are? They're mobile. Sound familiar? You know what else they are? They're organic. There's a reason we picked these words, by the way. Did you know that? You know what else they are? They're biblical. Very good. They're biblical. And you know what else buildings can't be that we can? Boom. I'm going to tell you something. How much better is our new temple than the old one? That old temple, even today's temples and cathedrals, they cannot be mobile. They cannot be organic. They cannot be biblical, and they cannot be generous. They're just made out of bricks. But our temple is made out of beautiful, living stones. And like the disciples, we are the beautiful stones that make up our true hope. That's the real beautiful building, church. And we struggle today, right? We struggle today with this same misguided hope sometimes in politics, in institutions, in money, even religious buildings and programs. We sometimes allow our hope to slip into those things and relying upon them. No, no, our hope is in the power of God to preserve While he didn't preserve the temple, he will preserve. He promised at the end of Mark 13 this. He will preserve the most precious, beautiful temple ever built, even when everything around it collapses and fails. With hope in the Holy Spirit within us, we can turn to Jesus as we walk out today from Grace Life as a church family together, and we can say, just like the disciple, Jesus, what wonderful stones, what a beautiful building. See, that's what Jesus teaches us today through this completely fulfilled prophecy from the first century. That's where our hope should be. In a new temple that he has built out of beautiful stones, he will never let be destroyed. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we constantly are struggling with misguided hope on the things which we see because the things we see are temporary. But as Paul said, the things we don't see, they are eternal. God, I don't know what people are struggling with today and where their hope is and what things are. But Lord, I just pray that if they are your children and you dwell within them as beautiful stones and a beautiful temple, if your power of your spirit is in them, I pray that you would use this prophecy that has been fulfilled by miraculous glory, that you would use this prophecy to redirect our misguided hope to where it needs to be, which is your people, your truth and your presence that lives within us. We ask for this in the name of our Savior, the living stone, Jesus. Amen. Well, there we go. I think that's our first prophecy sermon.
at Grace Life. I hope you enjoyed it. Mark 13 is powerful. I cannot wait for the rest of it. It's just going to be unbelievable. We love you all. For those of you watching out on uh, YouTube and Facebook, thank you for joining us. If you guys need anything, let us know. We got your back. Go out and admire the beautiful building. Amen. Have a great week.